So in a newborn, some signs that you would look for a tongue tie are the baby who makes clicking sounds. So if you hear every time the baby sucks, that is a sign that the tongue isn't staying attached to the nipple because the tongue should curl around the nipple in a U and stay there and just make the little wave with the tongue. Hi, I'm Sarah. Welcome to the Juno Women Podcast, where I sit down with mamas to talk about their health, their work, their parenting, and all the different ways that they're keeping it together. Juna is a fitness and nutrition app created to help guide you through your trying to conceive, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. Everything we do is designed to empower and support you through one of the most incredible and challenging times of your life. On today's episode, I'm talking with Elizabeth Morell, a physical therapist and mom who is an expert in helping other mamas raise calm, cool, and collected babies. We talk about how to engage your baby in developmentally appropriate ways and simple tips and tricks to calm even the fussiest of babies. If you are expecting soon or know somebody who is, this episode is a gold mine. Hope you enjoy. Excited to have you on the podcast. I think your specialty and expertise is very much needed for our audience. So why don't you start by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about you, your experience, and tell us who your mom to. So thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm super excited to chat with you and get out the word a little bit more. Like you said, my name is Elizabeth Morrell. I'm a physical therapist. I'm based out of Northern New Jersey. I've been a physical therapist since 2008, and I've always treated children, but more specifically babies. I did some clinicals in the NICU, and so that I knew little babies were going to be my thing right from the get-go. And I do also treat some moms with pelvic floor issues after birth, like incontinence and specifically pelvic floor prolapse, pelvic organ prolapse. But most of my clientele revolves around infants, newborns, and toddlers. I have a certification in craniosacral therapy, which means that I've been trained through the Upledger Institute all the way through pediatrics too. Um, Go ahead. Can I stop? Yeah. What is craniosacral therapy? (laughs) So craniosacral therapy is basically a manual technique that uses really gentle touch in order to unwind tension patterns in the body and specifically fascial restrictions and fascia are is connective tissue but it looks like little spider webs that go on top of the muscles i equate it to how we put the spider webs on our bushes for halloween Mm -hmm. and then it rains and then those spider webs get all stuck to the bushes. That's what happens with fascia getting stuck onto muscles and onto nerves because it's basically the connective tissue that wraps around your muscles, tendons, ligaments, nerves. And so everything needs to sl- slide around smoothly and so they don't get stuck to each other. And so craniosacral therapy is a really gentle technique in order to facilitate that to happen. And is that and mostly on the face and head? Is that okay? I think okay. that. It is mostly known for the face and head, but you do it on any single part of the body. Okay. Okay. I don't know why cranio sounds like head for me. You got it. I mean, it is, right? (laughs) So so your cerebral spinal fluid is made in your head and we use the cerebral spinal fluid in order to facilitate those fascial releases. So a lot of work is done in the head. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Very cool. All right. Now you may not have remembered where you left off on your introduction, but (laughs) (laughs) anything else to add for that? 
I think not really. There's okay. a whole lot of certifications and stuff like that, but it does, they're irrelevant, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. So your most most of your patients are pediatric and little babies. What do people come and see you for? So most of my patients come in with difficulty breastfeeding, and this is a really big kind of pandemic in and of itself. Is mm-hmm. that a lot of our babies now are super tight. And so when the baby is tight and the body is tight, it can be really hard to nurse or bottle feed. You can have the same issues um, on bottle feeding or at the breast, but when you're all scrunched up into a little ball, or if you're turned to one side, it's almost impossible to create that vacuum seal that you need in order to breast or bottle feed. And so most of my clientele revolves around the baby who is tight and fussy and spits up and maybe has um, some gut dysbiosis. So they might have some food sensitivities and also babies who have not optimal deliveries, such as a vacuum birth or forceps delivery or cesarean section, where we all plan on having natural vaginal deliveries. It doesn't always go to plan, but those um, extras can lead to some difficulties after that. Got it. And when you say tight babies, what do you mean? What? How does that present? So typically you would know that if your baby is tight, if their shoulders are constantly stuck up to their ears, if you can't see your baby's neck, that's a telltale sign right there. If okay. you, when you go to the bath, if you're trying, if you're pulling out like spoiled milk and lint and you're always trying to pull the baby's hands open that you can't get open. Though mm. that's a sight sign of a tight baby. Also, a baby who has a head turning preference. Every time they go on their bassinet, they're sleeping to the right. That's a sign of a tight baby. And maybe uh, so go ahead. No, keep going. And that might also be due to in utero constraint. And in utero constraint is basically that a baby picks a position in utero and sometimes that's for the entire third trimester. And so if their head is down, their butt is in your left ribs and their feet is in your right ribs, that's going to cause the baby to come out like a banana. So right from then you're looking at that whole natural unwinding pattern and a baby is supposed to be able to do that themselves and they can't always facilitate that on their own and need some extra help. Got it. Okay. So Sorry, can you hear the, Can you hear there's hammering in my house? <laughs> I just heard it was very gentle. Okay, okay, good. I'm like wondering if it's really being picked up. So my question, because like I like when I hear you describing what makes a tight baby, I'm thinking so every baby, because I just feel like they're all. I I like always make this joke that you know like newborn babies are like raw whole chickens like they're just like always so scrunched up and like even trying to pull their legs for diaper changes they Mm -hmm. just immediately like sling it right back into their chest okay so for the first four weeks a baby should typically look like that but they shouldn't necessarily be stuck like that okay got it and when you are doing diaper changes which is a great place to become familiar with your baby you might find that oh the left leg I can fully extend to get their pants on, but the right leg can't go anywhere. That's just a little bit of a sign. Hey, maybe the right side, there's something going on in there. So basically, babies that are tight can sometimes have difficulties feeding. 
is what you're saying. A hundred percent, especially if there's a head turning preference. If your baby consistently looks to the right, let's just say to the right mm-hmm. side, they're going to have an easier time nursing on the, what side of the body, the left breast than they will the right breast. And that is because when your baby com- turns to the right, that typically means that the left side of their body is tighter than the right side of their body. And so on the left breast, their left side is facing up, which means it's on slack. And the right side is on the bottom, which means it's being stretched out. And so it's easy for them to feed on that side. But then when you switch sides, the left side is down, which means it has to be stretched. And the baby is, uh uh-uh, no way, no how. And that can lead to the baby popping off the breast on that side, not transferring as much milk as they should on that side, maybe not even latching at all. I see that a lot. And Mm -hmm. it's just, you have to, when you have a newborn, you have to see, kind of judge like what's normal and what's not. And as like, some first time moms, I just have no idea what's normal and not. And so you're just, but I, so it's interesting with, with my most recent baby who is my, and my last baby, who's five months now, I, I was getting so frustrated in the beginning. Cause I was like, oh, he's so terrible at nursing on the left side and we're totally fine on the right side. And it, it's interesting cause like my left boob produces has always been my overproducer. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, because he was so terrible at nursing on that, it's like it's it's switched. Now that he's totally fine, my left has gone back to overproducing and my right has been my underproducer. But in the beginning, it was like flipped the other way because he just wasn't nursing that well from the left side. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like I had a tight baby and didn't know. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. Sometimes naturally there's more ducks on one side than the other. And so you will produce more milk, which also may make it more difficult. And I'm sure right. we'll go into this later. However, if a baby has oral motor dysfunction or difficulty nursing and you have way more milk or your milk ejection reflex is quite fast, it's going to be hard for them to swallow milk on that side. And so they'll also not want to nurse on that side because they're getting choked every single time. Yeah, that was a big problem for me with all three of them is I had the overactive letdown and it was just – the fir- with my first baby, it was the worst because I just had no idea what was happening. Mm-hmm. And every lactation consultant I saw was like, oh my god, your baby is very distressed. And I'm like, yes, I know. I know. That's not helpful. <laughs> so not what do we do about it? Yeah. And so with my second, I ended up doing like block feeding on both sides and that helped with the overact. It helped with the – oversupply, which then helped with the letdown. And eventually like she figured it out. And, and same with Why don't you tell them last. what blocked feeding is? Yes. So blocked feeding is when you just nurse on one side of the breast each time. So essentially like each boob is getting – is like feeding every six hours because I would feed on the left side and then three hours later I would feed on the right side and then feed on the left side three hours later. And so I would also in the beginning for anyone who has these issues too, I would use the Haka pump, mm-hmm. Haka, however you pronounce it, on the other side just for like relief because I was so engorged and that was the only relief I would give it between like within those six hours. And so I regulated much faster than I had with my first baby who I just, I, I struggled for, I think it was like three months with oversupply. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to say that it worked for you and it's a good thing. Just do that under um, advisement of your lactation consultant because you can yes. get mastitis if you do that without the help. So just make sure that you have someone guiding you on how to do that exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it can. And also, you also want to make sure that you 
do have oversupply because it, it, it block feeding is meant to bring down your supply. Yeah. And, and naturally when, after you give birth and after milk transitions, you should have a bit of an oversupply in order to, it's like survival of the fittest. And so we want our babies to survive. So you make a little bit extra milk in the beginning and that can be misrepresented as an oversupply. And it's really just how it's supposed to be. And it's more your baby's issue and that your baby can't swallow fast enough. And I think that's the bigger situation is that most babies these days, I just reread a 2018 study that said, 46.3% of babies have tongue ties and 35% of those tongue ties were impactful, which means that a percentage of those babies, yes, they all have oral motor dysfunction, but in at least 35% of babies, those tongue ties were impacting the way that they feed. And so it's important to note that you're not alone if your baby isn't nursing well. No. Oh my, yeah, I know. I, I think about, I'm so glad that I'm actually talking to you because right now this most recent season of our podcast is on pod, uh, is on postpartum series, is our postpartum series where we're talking to women about like the first two to 12 weeks of their postpartum life. And every single person I've talked to thus far has all had issues with breastfeeding because it just doesn't come naturally. It's not easy. And I think that especially when it's your first kid, like you really don't know what's normal. And so you just think that like, you you know, you've never heard of a tongue tie. So if if your OB is in the hospital, it goes undiagnosed. You don't, you just think that your baby's bad at latching or, or whatever. You're just, something's wrong with you. So why don't you actually talk a little bit about what are the signs of a tongue tie and how does that get diagnosed and what can you do? Okay, so oral motor dysfunction versus tongue tie are just a little bit different. Your baby might be bad at latching, and it's just that the tongue might be a little bit weak or doesn't know what to do yet. And that can be really easily remedied by your lactation consultant giving you positions, teaching you maybe some suck training exercises. And then within the next week, you should be moving on your merry way. A tongue tie, however, is the frenulum, which is underneath your tongue, which connects your tongue to the floor of the mouth, when that is shortened, which or tight or thick, which can make the tongue have poor movement. And if the tongue has poor movement, then it's going to affect multiple systems in your body, not just the feeding system. So in a newborn, some signs that you would look for a tongue tie are the baby who makes clicking sounds. So if you hear every time the baby sucks, That is a sign that the tongue isn't staying attached to the nipple because the tongue should curl around the nipple in a U and stay there and just make the little wave with the tongue. So if you hear that clicking sound, that means that something keeps pulling the tongue back off of the nipple onto the floor repeatedly. And then with that, every time the tongue pops off, you're going to get a bubble of air going right into the stomach. So that's actually has a term. It's called aerophagia. And then aerophagia, which essentially means sucking in too much air, will cause aerophagic reflux. And aerophagic reflux is when you have the layers, milk, then gas, milk, gas, milk, gas, and it has to come up some way. So that's either going to come up as silent reflux, which is another tongue tie symptom. And silent reflux would look like my baby isn't spitting up, but they're arching their back, they're popping off their breasts, they're clearly in discomfort, or they might be sticking their tongue out or swallowing repeatedly. Those are some signs of silent reflux. 
or it might come up as real spit up. And that's just showing you that there's so much gas in the stomach that it's pushing up the excess milk. So those are a couple signs and symptoms. Other signs are that your baby can't latch or how about that you have a lot of pain when breastfeeding. Your breast nipples should not be cracked, bleeding, blistering at the first latch. That shouldn't be a thing. It shouldn't even be a thing three weeks in. You, it's, it shouldn't be painful to breastfeed your baby despite what you may have heard repeatedly, even in your own experience from the giving birth. I personally had that experience. My daughter's first latch, my first baby first latch, I bled immediately. And I was like, this isn't normal. Can we check this baby for a tongue tie? And they were like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. It's supposed to hurt. And I was like, no, it's not. I think that's a huge misnomer. So it's not supposed to hurt. Your nipples are not supposed to bleed. They're not supposed to crack. That can be both a sign of just a poor latch or and a very big sign of a tongue tie. And then another one would be an undersupply. So your baby needs to drain the breast, especially stimulate the breast to make the milk. And it's super essential within the first couple of days of life to start up your milk supply and make it like that's going to be the starting point for the whole first year of life. Mm-hmm. And so if the baby isn't suckling well, for in those first couple of days, you might not establish that good supply. And so having a low supply can be a very good sign that your baby um, has a tongue tie, or at least their mouth should be evaluated. And then the opposite can be that you have an oversupply because your baby's on the breast 24 hours a day, because they either have a lot of reflux, aerophagic reflux, where their throat is constantly burning. And so what do they do? They drink more and more milk to soothe their throat all day long, which means you're constantly draining. And if you're constantly draining, then you're constantly producing and it can, you can get an oversupply that way. And then if they don't latch well, they can clamp on the breast and that can cause some clogged ducts and worst case scenario being mastitis. Those are some general tongue tie symptoms. And then the more broad tongue tie symptoms that I think are more important are sleeping with the mouth open. That's a huge one. The mouth Mm. needs to be closed on every single baby. And I can't stress this enough for babies, for toddlers and for adults. Yes, we're talking about breastfeeding right now and in this moment, but a tongue tie will really affect the rest of the baby's life if the mouth is open. So the mouth should be closed, the lips should be shut, and the tongue should be glued up onto the roof of the mouth, which is called the palate. And mm-hmm. if there's a tongue tie, the, the, the short frenulum will pull the tongue down and it won't be able to sit on the palate. And if it can't, that means that the mouth will have to open and you can't nasal breathe because if the tongue is down, it's going to block the airway. And so we have to respond to that by opening the mouth in order to breathe. Okay. So the tongue being glued up onto the palate is what creates the airway, the shape of the airway. And as your tongue is glued onto your palate, it's creating a low U shape structure. And a tongue tie won't allow that U-shaped structure to happen and the palate will look more like a V. But if you make an upside down U with your hand, you can see that it's nice and wide. And if you make a V shape with your hand upside down, that's very narrow. That's actually, you're actually looking at the shape of your airway. 
in both circumstances. So we obviously want a really low and wide palate in order to facilitate a nice open airway. So the tongue being glued up onto the palate is what facilitates basically every system happening. It facilitates the respiratory system. We need to nasal breathe in order to filter our air. We don't want to suck in viruses, pathogens, dust, dry heat through our mouth all night. That's what makes us sick. That's what enlarges our, tons our tonsils and adenoids. We, it affects your gut. If you sleep with your mouth open, you're sucking in all of the bacteria and that's going to go right into your gut. And our gut is really a big part of our immune system. So we're looking at a gut dysbiosis. Your mouth being open is going to affect your growth, right? Because your tongue rubbing on your palate also affects your hormones and your growth hormones. So that's a big one. Your tongue being glued up onto your palate is the way that you make speech sounds. Each part of your tongue needs to hit your palate in a certain way in order to speak. So your tongue gluing up onto that palate, and it has to stay on that palate in order for it to be low and wide so that you can, your tongue, when you are one, your tongue can't hit the palate and you can make all the appropriate speech sounds. And then your tongue being glued up on your onto your palate also is what creates the shape of the face. And so if you think about the caveman, how you almost think of a square, right? Cavemen, if we think about pictures and what we th thought they looked like and their jaws, they were very wide and square mouths. And that is because they used to chew a lot of bark and meat. And the tongue needs to be able to move over to the side and chew. And that will also facilitate the shape of the face. And now that we have a lot of babies who have tongue ties, if the tongue isn't resting up on the palate and creating the shape of the mouth, then that mouth is going to be much more narrow. And so the we don't we go from that caveman style shape of face to a long, narrow shape of face, which again goes back to that V-like structure, which means less airway. And so a lot of us as adults, even my own friends, have had a lot of teeth pulled. And the reason for that is because when your arch is really narrow because your tongue didn't create that shape, then all the teeth don't fit. And so the remedy for that was to pull some adult teeth and then get braces in order for all the teeth to fit. And so is that like the palate expander thing? So a palate expander is going to artificially create that opening for you if your tongue didn't do right. its job. And that okay. is a very real situation. And it's also really, our technology has improved greatly and it's amazing. My own kids have palate expanders. At My little guy got it at two and a half. Because I meet and I know how much airway matters, I got his palate expanded, a palate expander put in, which is called an ALF. It's a little wire that goes behind his teeth. It's not like the big one where you had to turn the key like we had when we were kids. It's just a little wire that goes behind his teeth and it is, you know, artificially expanding his palate in order to create that bigger airway because his tongue couldn't do a good enough job. So there still is definitely that option. And the reason I did it so young was because brain development is the most from zero to five. And so with every night of poor sleep, you're basically losing oxygen to the brain, which means you don't have as good as pot potential that you have to have awesome brain development. And because I know what I know, 
I started both kids with palate expansion really young. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about the Juna app, which is the app that makes this podcast possible. Juna is the only pregnancy and postpartum fitness and nutrition app with more than 200 pregnancy and postpartum safe workouts. The app also includes a key nutrient to focus on every week. For example, in week 16, Juna recommends vitamin C because vitamin C supports healthy lung development and it boosts immunity and it lowers the risk of developing preeclampsia. From there, we give you delicious recipes that help you get that exact nutrient in your life both quickly and easily. Juna also includes daily diaphragmatic breathing exercises as well as pelvic floor prep to keep things intact before and after labor. We also provide you daily tips to get you through each stage of your pregnancy and are constantly adding more to the experience. Lastly, every week there is a note from me that is relevant to the exact things you're experiencing. These are so helpful for easing any fears you may have as well as preventing gestational Google mania, the sickness where you can't stop Googling every little thing that happens during pregnancy. You can find the app by searching Juna in the iOS app store or visiting juna.co. And the best part is when you enter your due date or baby's birthday for postpartum, the app will automatically place you exactly where you're supposed to be. As a Juna Women podcast listener, we are offering you your first 30 days free. This deal is only available through our website. Go to juna.co and when you get to the credit card page, use coupon code JUNAPOD, all in caps. Again, that is J-U-N-A-P-O-D, all in caps. Now, back to the show. Did you find I'm I ask this because I literally just was with my pediatric dentist and I think I on our prelim call like I told you that my son has a side he has a crossbite and mm-hmm. they were they basically told me I have to wait until he like starts losing his teeth to get a palate expander and so now I'm like I clearly have the wrong dentist. <laughs> yes, it's true. There is many appliances. So my kids okay. have an elf which is that wire. It can also fix a crossbite. Just FYI. There's something also called an AGA, A-G-G-A, which is an anterior posterior expansion system. But basically there are three, there's a myobrace, which kind of looks like a sports uh, mouth guard that you could use. But there are multiple appliances that can start from very young ages in order to remedy these issues very early in life versus waiting for them to happen and puberty to hit and all that good stuff. So I think the more important part is I said the tongue going up on the palate is great for airway, but I feel like we should also know why. And I think that's because a child who breathes through their mouth at night gets less deep sleep. And I think this is the biggest part that we want to hit home on that front is that just because you're in your bed from seven to seven from 12 hours doesn't mean that the sleep is good sleep. Your kid might be sleeping with their mouth open or might they might have their mouth closed but be tossing and turning, having night terrors. My dentist says that they often dream of falling or flying when they have night terrors and that's specifically associated with airway. And they might have bedwetting and anxiety. So your child, if they exhibit these symptoms, aren't getting that deep restful sleep. And then the next day, they're going to present as overtired. And overtired looks like a child who has behavioral issues. It looks like a child who has Mm -hmm. a lot of meltdowns. And it can also look like a child who has ADHD 
where they're like climbing the walls and they can't sit still. It's all just because they're tired. They are not bad kids or have something wrong with them. They are tired. And yes, I treat babies all day, every day for breastfeeding difficulties, but I immediately drive home that, you know what, this breastfeeding is going to help your child sleep better, which is going to help your child's brain function better. And I think that's something that we really don't think about when we're talking about tongue ties that often. 50% of my clientele will say, I really don't want to get the surgery. And I say, okay, which is fine. Everybody gets to make their own choice. But for me, we're not doing this phrenectomy, which is a tongue tie clip, to just for breastfeeding or just for bottle feeding and for the gas and the fussiness. You're doing it for a lifelong headache of breathing issues. Can you say that again? Yeah. So we're doing this not just for breastfeeding, but to remedy a lifelong grocery list of breathing issues. Hey, Elizabeth. Can you not hear me? Can you hear me? Uh Uh-oh. Did I lose you? Yeah, yeah. Do you have a good internet connection? Yeah, I'm looking at it. It's full and I okay. see myself talking. Yeah, it's you're now you're clear again. So the last thing you, I just you, you said, you're not just getting it for the fussiness, you're also getting the phrenectomy for for the grocery list of symptoms that you're going to have with breathing issues down the line. Got it. Now I'm curious cuz we've talked a lot about tongue tie. Does this also apply to lip ties? So The interesting thing about lip ties is that 95% of babies who have lip ties have tongue ties. They Mm. have to, the tongue tie has to be diagnosed correctly, which means that the baby needs to be in your lap facing away from you. So their head is close to your body, their feet is away, and you need to put your fingers deep under the tongue and pull up. So it is a very specific technique. It can't be done in a pediatrician's office by them sticking a popsicle stick under their tongue and lifting or just having them cry and say, I don't see any string. It has to be done a specific way. So a lot of lip ties are associated with tongue ties, but they aren't necessarily caught. Got it. However, a lip tie will um, allow air under the seal. So your lip, your, your upper lip and your tongue and your cheeks create that vacuum. And so if you're, if you have an upper lip tie and your lip constantly curls under, you're going to be allowing air to come into that latch, which is going to cause those aerophagic symptoms, regardless of whether there's a tongue tie or not a tongue tie. And one thing I didn't say before was also, if you have a lip tie, your lip is glued onto your gum line. And so there's not a lot of saliva flowing back and forth. The saliva gets stuck up there, which means that breast milk or just saliva itself will sit on top of the teeth and this can cause decay. So you might see kids, what we used to call back in the day, bottle rot, which is like little cavities on the top of the teeth. It's because the lip, they have a lip tie or buckle ties. Those are bonus. Those are cheek ties on the side of the upper lip. And that holds the lip onto the gum line, which basically just keeps that saliva sitting there and eating away at the teeth. Got it. And can you get the lip tie revised? Of course. So basically a phrenectomy, which is a revision, they can either use scissors or laser. It really doesn't matter. What matters is the provider that's doing it. You just want someone who does this routinely, almost only for a living. If not, it's most of their practice because they're going to have the feel for what 
they need to be snipping and how deep they need to be snipping. You can revise any one of seven ties. So there would be an upper lip, a tongue tie, two cheek ties on the top. So one on either side of your upper lip. There could be two lower buckle ties. So one on either side of your lower lip and then one in the center of your lower lip. I would say the most commonly revised are just a tongue tie and a lip tie. And then buckle ties are the newer and more prevalent ties to be fixed as well. Got it. So let's, yeah, let's talk about like phrenectomies, like what someone can expect with it. So I think the most important thing before getting a phrenectomy is getting the baby prepared for the phrenectomy. And what's Mm -hmm. important about that is how we just described the tight baby, right? If a baby's shoulders are up in their ears and the baby is looking to one side, then when the doctor who's going to perform the phrenectomy goes in the mouth, they might not be able to see deep enough or get a good enough release because there's too much muscular involvement on top of the fascial restriction that already occurs. So you really need to see an IBCLC first, let them assess the baby and give the baby some general exercises. And then in the ideal world, you would see a body worker and a body worker could be someone like me, a PT, They might be an occupational therapist. They might be a speech language pathologist. They might be a chiropractor. They might be a DO, doctor of osteopathy, or cranial sacral therapist. And any one of those who's trained specifically in tongue ties can help relax the baby's shoulders down, open up their neck, open up their fascia, gain some stability with some nice core exercises. And then once that occurs, and also their nervous system. We can't take a baby who's screaming and crying all day long and cut their tongue because they're not going to be able to come back from that. We want to calm them down enough so that they'll be able to handle the phrenectomy itself. So the Mm -hmm. ideal scenario would be IBCLC to body worker. And then once they're relaxed a little bit, tensions unwound, you know what the tongue is supposed to do. The tongue is supposed to be glued up to the mouth. The lips are supposed to be closed. The tongue is supposed to be able to move left and right. You can create that you like vacuum with the tongue and you have eliminated that head turning preference. Now you're ready to go and then you get the actual phrenectomy. And how long would that typically take? Like how long would it take you to get a baby ready for a phrenectomy? So that depends on the age, right? Okay. A newborn baby literally fresh out of the hospital, they can do one session to two sessions and be ready to go. Okay. Okay. And if you come in four and a half months, you, so you start sucking in utero at 20 weeks. The tongue is made at 10 weeks. You start sucking in utero at 20 weeks. That means you have months of compensatory patterns, even in utero. And then Mm. you're going to add four months of out in the real world, compensatory patterns on top of that. We can't just go and cut underneath their tongue because they need to relearn the new patterns and they need to take more time. So that might be three, four, five, six, seven sessions if the child is older. It just depends on how old. But ideally, if you knew what you were looking at, you would come out of the hospital, have your lactation consultant, get to your body worker, and then get your phrenectomy done so that you can have an early start and the right start to your breastfeeding or bottle feeding relationship. Got it. Okay. I think, no, no, no. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> You're good. No, no, go. I think that piece right there 
is the missing link. Because what happens after, at the phrenectomy is that they cut the lip tie and tongue tie. It'll be in the shape of a diamond. And then you have to stretch open that wound five times a day afterward. I think everybody's prepared for this because they're told this by either uh, their lactation consultant or their body worker, or they read it online. They know that they basically have to rip off the bandaid every five hours because it's a wound that's in your mouth and your mouth is closed. So we need to pull that wound open by secondary healing so that it stays as a nice big diamond or else it will close down on itself. <clears throat> okay. And so I think that the missing link is that preparation for the baby. Because at the phrenectomy, usually the doctor will tell the mother or father or partner, hey, you need to teach this baby how to suck swallow properly now. And again, you can go back to the same kind of provider, whoever is trained in your area to work with a baby with tongue ties. And you'll learn how to rehabilitate that tongue. So it has to gain strength. It has to move left and right. We have to get that mouth closed for real now. That tongue needs to be glued up onto that palate and you really go. And that is should be par for the course. And I think it really is being recommended all over the world. Definitely our country, but all over the world. The part that's not always recommended is the pre-work. But like I said earlier, if the shoulders are in their ears and the baby's stuck in fight or flight crying all day long because their belly hurts because they're sucking in too much air, they don't necessarily have a good outcome. And a good good outcome is basically like your tongue, like it doesn't go back to the tie. It stays separated. So in terms of wound healing, yes the tongue, you need the tongue to stay separated so that the tongue can glue onto the roof of the mouth, the mouth can be closed. And while nursing or bottle feeding, it can create that U shape around the nipple and not let go to create that vacuum seal so that no, there's no air going in whatsoever. Got it. Got it. And so a bad outcome is not just it getting reattached, but it's them not figuring out any of those things that you just said. And a less ideal outcome would be that we cut the tongue, but if it has no idea what to do now, it's just going to go back into the same patterns. And that is something that we see a lot day after day is that you've heard of a tongue tie, your best friend had one. So your baby, you recognize that your baby has this issue. You go and you get it clipped. But then the post pre and post work wasn't recommended and the tongue never does what it needs to do. And that's because it really does need to learn and the body needs to learn what to do. And the cranial nerves, which are the nerves that control the eyes, the sense of smell, the taste, the vagus nerve, which takes you out of fight or flight. All these systems need to work together. And if there isn't somebody teaching you how to do this, then your outcome might be the exact same as what it was prior to the release. The only thing a tongue tie release does is freeze. It doesn't do anything else. Got it. Oh, man. that's And so I, I, how many kids with tongue ties actually end up getting a phrenectomy? Do you have that stat? No, definitely no. not. Okay. Especially if they say that 46.3% of babies actually have tongue ties. I doubt one out of every two babies being born is getting a phrenectomy, especially right. because there's a whole lot of pushback from providers, dentists, ENTs, pediatricians, 
That's a good question. I think that's the battle that we're constantly fighting is why. Every day I hear in my office, oh, my pediatrician told me that it was a fad and that everyone's doing it. But the truth is that a lot of babies are born with oromotor difficulties. And so going back to the providers and telling them, hey, I did this and now my baby's doing better is really important. I think it's just an old school thought process. And they there is one why and they think that it's a money making scheme. So the ENT is really cutting up those tongues so they could charge $500 for nectomy and do that 20 times a day and make money. That's what they that's what they say and I've heard it in person out loud. So you've you've heard pediatricians say that about ENTs. ENT dentist or official surgeon, okay. but yes. That okay. like getting releasing tongue ties is a money making scheme. Yikes. Okay. <laughs> Winner. Yeah. Yeah. I ha- actually had a lactation consultant on and she was saying that that OBs don't like to to call tongue ties either and that it's like a constant battle between lactation consultant and OBs as well. And I'm sure I'm obviously that's not all, but I it is interesting cuz I like there's a very real problem like you see the very real problem. Mm-hmm with nursing moms and and that's just one side of the equation. Then you have the child's um, entire life. I think that's the more interesting part, right? Like it's not just about this breastfeeding relationship because you can tell the mom to go to formula. That's fine or pump and bottle feed. But first of all, some babies can't even bottle feed because of their tongue tie. So that's an issue. But what about feeding, sleep, feeding, sleep, speech, dental issues, cavities, braces. What about all of those? Don't they matter? Mm -hmm. Gut health? They all matter. And so I think that it's just almost insane that we're even questioning that this is an issue at this point. I think that what should happen is if you want to be conservative, if this pediatrician is, ah, this thing is a fad, what? Go to the therapist, go to PT and see how you do. Because guess what? If you do craniosacral therapy and physical therapy and Cairo or whatever you have near you and your baby just gets better and it's all good, then it's all good. But if your provider is tongue-tie savvy and there is nothing that is going to stretch a frenulum, and I think that's important, right? Because we hear that all the time too. Oh, it'll just stretch out. Or your baby will fall on their face when they're three and they'll break their lip tie. Don't worry. So like you're encouraging them to fall on their face and have a blood bath because it's very vascular, have a blood bath over just like a snip really fast. It's a little bit, it's a little bit crazy, but a more conservative method would be try out the therapy first. And I think that's also what kind of brought me to make my personal program to put out there for parents is that if 46.3% of babies have feeding dysfunction, On top of the fact that new moms have no idea what to do with their baby. There's no handbook. We just have a baby and this is Corona. So they get you out in 24 hours and they say, here you go. Good luck. Have Mm -hmm. at it. And moms just sit there and stare at their baby. Now what? And that's why I put together the now what? Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about what your program is about and who it's for? Sure. So I ideally made it for any parent or caregiver and any baby. Like I said, there's no rule book when you have a baby and 
so this can give you a little bit of guidance of things to do with your baby. But since this is the population that I work at, I specifically target making calming the nervous system, making the mouth move better, decreasing head turning preferences, if not eliminating them, getting the gas out and strengthening up so that if your baby is the baby that's having difficulty feeding or you have the baby that's quote unquote colicky, which colicky is not a thing. Colicky just means I'm gassy, I'm in pain, maybe I have a food sensitivity, but they don't know what to call it. That's colic. There's no such thing. But anyway, if you have that baby, this is going to be a home run for you. So within the program, there's a workbook. So if your baby's sleeping or feeding and you want to browse through it, you can do it without audio, uh, video or audio. And then there are 10 associated videos and they basically comprise of massage, exercises, movement exercises, and stretching. And the combination of all three of those things will calm the cranial nerves. And like I said before, the cranial nerves are the nerves that come out of the head and they do movement and sensory of the eyes, sensory to the skin of the face, the jaw and feeding muscles, the swallowing muscles, the sense of smell, the vagus nerve, which takes you out of fight or flight, and also the muscles that control the the neck, right? Those all come out of the head. So specifically targeting those nerves also just calm a baby down. So the baby who's constantly in that fight or flight stage where every time you step on a floorboard, if they're jumping through the roof, that's not a great thing. If every time you go to give them a bottle and they're screaming, crying, that's not a great thing. So we want to calm those nerves down. We're going to work on getting all the gas out and what massage techniques are good to get the gas out. We're going to work on tummy time. Of course, everybody knows what tummy time is, but it's really about how you do tummy time. What's the method behind tummy time and what makes, how can you make your tummy time go from being five seconds long to being 10 minutes long? How do we do that? What's the method behind the madness? And it's not just about tummy time. I think I talk about that a lot in the course. We all know that we can put our babies in a play gym and have them on their back and looking up. And we all have heard that tummy time is amazing for your baby but we forget about all of the other positions that are associated with movement, specifically sideline. The specific five-month sideline position is made to turn on the obliques, the transverse abdominals, get out the gas, get one side of your body moving in flexion and the other side in extension, which makes complete opposites, which then when you have complete opposites working at the same time, your left brain is talking to your right brain, which makes the information superhighway in between go crazy. And so sideline is actually the best position for your baby to be in, but we never talk about that one. And so talk about how to do it. What does it look like? Visual tracking. How do we unpinch the nerves through that? How can we eliminate the head turning preference through that? How do we untether that chin from being glued to the shoulders and all of the in-between with some nice fascial release positions where the baby can just hang out and unwind? And we talk about sucking and what should sucking look like and what are some other easy mouth exercises that every parent or caregiver can do with their baby in order to facilitate a better oral motor structure, a better seal. It doesn't matter if you have a tongue tie or not a tongue tie. Every baby can use core work, just like us. We all could use, we all need to go to the gym or we all need to 
do at least some stability exercises in our house. We all need to work on postural control all day, every day. It's huge. The same thing with a baby and starting those habits with a baby. Postural control means everything. If you've ever heard the term, if you can't function, if you can't breathe, it's so important. Our diaphragm has to work appropriately. Babies shouldn't belly breathe. Babies should actually use their diaphragm appropriately, pull down the diaphragm as they inhale and the ribs come out. Exhale, the diaphragm should come up and become a plunger and as the ribs go down. But a lot of our babies belly breathe and belly breathe really fast. And that's because the diaphragm isn't moving appropriately and the ribs are stuck. So those are just some things that we can key in on in a super early age and work on them right from the get-go to get them set off in a good way. So the way that I describe the program is really easy. I talk very slow, very simply, and the exercises are really easy, but the reason why I do them is very in-depth. And so no one will have trouble following along, but it's basically gonna set a baby up for better feeding, better breathing, cool, calm, and collected, and then nice and strong for the rest of their infancy. And now I know this is targeted at obviously newborns, but like what is the age in which is appropriate that we can still do this course? So this course is mainly directed for babies who are zero to six months of age. At six months, you might have a baby who really hated tummy time and you might have to start at the beginning. And there's also a six to 12 month program that's coming out. It's in editing right now, actually. Oh, wonderful. But yeah, but this one is targeted for zero to six months. Okay. Wonderful. We'll definitely add it to the link to it in the show notes. I have so many more questions, but I I think we should save it for another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Because this was, I think that this is like a very targeted and useful piece of content for anyone who's having feeding specific problems. Right. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. I, I, I didn't say much because I was just super fascinated. So thank you for doing such a wonderful job of being so clear on all the issues. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Okay, that's all for today. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a mama friend and leave us a review. If you're pregnant, postpartum, or trying to conceive, you can download the Juna app completely free for seven days. The app is available for iOS and Android and is designed to be your guide for all things health and fitness for this very special time of your life. If you have any suggestions for episodes you would like to hear or anyone you think would be a great guest on the show, please email me directly at sarah at Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.